welcome to the new season of Parallel Justice, brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association and the National Center for Victims of Crime. I'm Renee Williams, your host for this series. This season, we will dive into the realities of our criminal justice system through exclusive interviews with expert attorneys who took on cases that dominated headlines. We will investigate civil justice sought for criminal acts and examine the ways that the civil justice system has forced change and made society safer. The topics we discuss may be disturbing and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics are triggering and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center. We acknowledge that even though these views may be controversial, we know silence, especially on tough issues, only enables wrongdoers and perpetuates abuse. Our goal in these discussions is to bring these issues to light and make victims aware of the systems available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. As always, I am your host, Renee Williams, the Executive Director of the National Crime Victim Bar Association. And joining me is a very special guest that I am so excited to finally get a chance to to chat with. I'm going to let her introduce herself. Anne, could you tell us a little bit about you? Oh, well, I'm Anne Olivarius. I work out of London. It's our headquarters for McAllister Olivarius, a firm I started in the 1990s. We have, uh, we're also based in the States and um, in fact, probably 85% of our work is in the States. We do um, employment discrimination, all sorts of women's rights work, which means we do human rights work. We have been instrumental in putting the revenge porn law on the books in the UK, which has got about 3000 people, men and women in jail for sharing intimate pictures without consent of people on the internet. We're really working hard in the cyber abuse area, and um, we do an awful lot of child abuse and increasingly sexual abuse, sexual assault of people who have been assaulted, raped as adults. And you just listed so many things, and there were so many ways we could have taken this podcast that that as I was reading through your cases, especially with the non-consensual intimate images that I wanted to take this. But I was so excited that you proposed the case that we're actually going to talk about, um, which is a very personal case. And it's it's your case, and it's not something we often get to do on Parallel Justice. So we're going to walk through that. Can you take us back to 1974 and set the stage of what happened? All right. In 1974, I'm a um, kid from New Jersey who um, came from a large Catholic family, well, large, I had four sisters, have four sisters. And um, I was at Yale, one of the new generation of women whose doors had been opened um, to take women. And uh, I was pleased and thrilled and felt like um, I was, I had so much to be grateful for to be at Yale. And when I was at Yale, I um, went up in 73. And in 74, um, I, met and uh, knew a chap called Cal Hirsch, Calvin Hirsch. He's now a um, doctor at the UC Medical System, UC Davis Medical System, Dr. Calvin Hirsch. He does geriatrics. But back then, um, he was an aspiring doctor. 
and I met him and um, didn't know him well. But one night he asked if we could go to the movies. And um, I wasn't real interested in that. Uh, I, I only knew Cal, you know, hi, how are you kind of thing, friendly. We'd been at Harvard um, the summer before. He knew I had a boyfriend at Harvard who I was living with. And so, um, you know, uh, there was no thought of any kind of intimacy with Cal, certainly. Um, I wasn't uh, in that mental space, and he knew I wasn't in that mental space. But he said he'd had a hard day and really would love to spend some time. So I thought, okay, fine. It was um, a weekend night. And so we went to a movie, and then um, afterwards he said, um, you know, could I, he walked me back and said, could he come in for a cup of coffee? And I said, sure, uh, into my room. I had a triple. So I had a bedroom that time, and there were two roommates. And he then said, could he stay over? And um, I was quite surprised at that, actually. I, I was pretty young, you know, what, 19 or something, and uh, didn't have a lot of experience of the world in that way. And um, he said that uh, he had a really, really tough time. His parents were elderly. He was an only child. He just really pleaded. They looked so sad. And uh, I said, okay. Um, and I reminded him about Mark Roboto, my boyfriend. He actually then took a toothbrush out uh, to go to our suite's bathroom. And I remember looking at him and my roommates came in and I said, Cal is going to stay over. And they sort of looked at me very surprised. When I went to the bathroom, I thought to myself, well, um, I don't know much about life, but, you know, do men ask to stay over and bring their toothbrushes? Is this a Yale man's kind of thing? Um, and he came back out and then we went to bed and I got dressed and I had a lot of clothes on, um, sweatpants, underpants, and I went against the wall and we didn't talk. I just said goodnight. We didn't kiss. We didn't hug. We didn't touch. There had been no drinking. There had been no smoking of anything. Uh, it was totally just, you know, I'm sorry you're having a hard time if you need this body next to you. Okay, that's that's okay. Now, Anne, I want to know what was going through your head here. You have a man who's just brought this toothbrush and he's laying in bed next to you. What's going on? And I asked the question that I learned is, is dangerous in life. And the question I said was, instead of why do I do this? I said, well, why not? And I did this kind of girl thing of thinking that uh, I would be less of a person if I didn't try to help this putative friend. So I figured, what's, you know, it's fine. There's nothing going on here. But um, as the dawn was coming up, I woke up with Cal on top of me, tearing up my clothes, choking my throat, and um, pulling me off and uh, himself off of me as I was trying to fight. And um, I asked him to stop as best I could. I could barely catch my breath. He drooled on me and then he slapped me and then he tore at my face with his nails. He was really fighting hard. And it seemed pretty instantly before I could really even gather what was going on. Um, he was inside of me sexually. And very quickly, he ejaculated, uh, rolled off of me, said nothing uh, at all, just rolled and looked in the other direction. And I just laid there and thought, What's happened? How did this happen? And then, of course, how could I have been so stupid? Now, so many women have felt this way and they've blamed themselves. And and this leads me to the question, what do you do next? I started crying quite um, silently in a sense, but tears were flooding down my face. My lip was bleeding. I could feel that I was uh, wet 
between my legs in a way that I thought was probably blood. Um, also, it was just a very miserable feeling. I just laid there with my eyes open, the sun coming up more quickly. And then Cal got up and put on his clothes, did not turn to me and say, hey, do you want to go get some breakfast at the Yale dining halls or any of the things that might have been normal in a circumstance where there had been consensual sex. I got up and called the Yale police and said that I'd just been raped. And the police officer asked some questions, a male, and I explained that it was um, an aspiring med student, a white guy um, from Yale. I was answering the question the police officer put to me. I didn't volunteer he was a white guy or aspiring doctor, but these are the questions the Yale police put to me. He was a Yale, in fact. And the police officer said, so you knew him? And I said, yes, I, yes, I know him. Yes, I, I do. He said, well, then you must have asked for it. It couldn't have been rape. And I said, no, 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 this was rape. But for the Yale police, I said, would you send someone over to take a statement? They said no. Um, and that was it. And I sat at the edge of the bed and thought, what do I do? And I decided I best go have a shower. So like a lot of people I've learned since do, I scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed. And uh, then went to the dining hall and spoke to someone about it there. Um, later on, I went to see some Yale administrators, including Kingman Brewster, who was the president at the time. I saw him on another matter and told him about it. And he said, this happens a lot, but nothing could be done. He didn't see it as rape. It was a free thing on Cal's part. So that was that. Um, some time went by, and I spoke to my master of the college about it, and he couldn't do anything. And so I then went to see the Sorrells, um, who are a doctor and wife team. He's a, um, he's a medical doctor, obstetric gynecology. They were sex counselors at Yale. And I talked to them about it. And, um, you know, that was about it. And then life went on. There was nothing I could do. Um, I did fairly soon thereafter attend a conference with Gloria Steinem at Wesleyan. And I asked a group of maybe a thousand people there, I said, how many of you have been raped? And Renee, um, no one raised their hand. And I stood there looking at the group and I thought to myself, am I the only woman who was in this circumstance? And then I said, how many of you have been date raped? And almost every room, every, every hand in the room went up. And I realized, okay, I'm, I'm now tuning into something here. This is an interesting. That started that term, um, and uh, Susan Brown Miller published it. It's come up some other places at and around that time. So culture was clearly moving in that direction. But I started giving a lot of talks and talking of date rape because of the Cal Hirsch um, event. And then years passed, and um, I tried to see uh, some years passed. I became a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, I went back to Yale Law School after that. And I was applying for summer jobs. And when I was at Yale Law School, some years after this had happened, I um, had all these images, again, of Cal Hirsch and rape. And I think being at Yale, being in that environment, you know, the word now people use it are triggers, you know, fair enough. And um, I went out and called Cal to see if I could see him in California when I was interviewing for a summer job. He said, sure. And I went and met with him um, at a place that um, he told me to come to, a place he was living in, it looked like a, an old train car or something like that. I'd, I'd never seen these things in San Francisco. Went in, it was very dark. And he seemed to have things like um, metal things along the walls and stuff. And he made a joke, and he said, well, joke, he said, 
well, this is for BDSM. I'm, I'm really into that stuff. Was well, he a physician at this point yet? Physician at that time. He said he had a wife who he just divorced and he had very unkind things to say about his wife and how she was violent and vicious and crazy and all these kinds of really unpleasant things to hear. And, uh, and he talked about liking, um, you know, sadism and, uh, and all of this. And so um, I said, let's, let's go to dinner. And he said, well, I want to take you for a ride first. And he put me in a, some sort of sports car with, that had the um, top that was, you know, down. And he went up these San Francisco streets at speed. And then when he got to the top, he'd leap over them. So you were in the air for a little bit and then land again. He did this a few times and he thought clearly that was pretty impressive. Then I went to dinner and I was resolved to have this conversation about why he had raped me, why he had strangled me, and to talk about it. So that if we talked about it, then, you know, I could essentially come to terms with this. I could forgive him. You know, I wanted to really air this. And so we had this dinner and it was hard to get a word in edgewise. He was full of himself. He was full of bitterness at his ex-wife. He was full of anger. And he talked about medicine and how much he actually didn't like being a medical person and being a geriatrician, all these dumb older people. And by the time the dessert came, I remember thinking, I better get into the conversation I'm here for now because it's going to pass this opportunity. And I started to say something. He interrupted me again about feeling sorry for himself, how hard it had been for him, what a narcissist he was. I was trying to sort of do the system by getting extra money as a doctor in ways that I wondered, is this even legal? It, it was really a very sad conversation. And something clicked inside of me, Renee, and I thought, okay, um, I don't need to talk to him. He's, it's, you know, he's so sad. He's such a miserable creature. I thought, what a pathetic human being. And it sort of broken me. The fever of needing to talk to him broke. I thought, okay, it's, it's done. Let it go. And so he then walked me out to the car at the end and we got out to my rental car and he pounces on me as if, you know, all this was just foreplay, verbal foreplay to a sexual encounter. And I don't know where he thought we were going to go, what was going to happen, but he was clearly thinking that uh, I was available to him. And I remember ducking him and thinking, how could he possibly have this thought? There was not one touching there wasn't a flirtation. There was no, hey, what's your life like? Hey, what's your sex life like? Or, hey, are you interested? And I ducked and weaved, said goodbye, and left without even a handshake goodbye. I mean, it Go sounds back. like he was a true narcissist and not <laughs> at all discussing you at all. And that is not what matters to narcissists, right? It's, it's very much what is happening for them. I mean, that was essentially it over the years. You know, I've had children, I've and Christmas cards, I think always thinking, could this become right? Um, at one point, I saw this wonderful um, uh, TED talk by a woman and her rapist, an American man, and I think she's Icelandic or Finnish, and they talk about what happened, and there's a reconciliation, which I just think is such a wonderful moment, and I was trying to achieve that with Cal, and I actually sent him that TED talk, to which he gave no response, but before I sent the TED talk, some years later, about 10 years ago, I wrote him, and we had a dialogue. I said, I want to write you about, and we had a dialogue um, uh, back and forth on email. And it was really clear that uh, he felt no remorse. He was full of himself um, and really uh, terribly in a bad, horrible 
you know, really narcissistic place. So that was it. I went around for many years thinking, what can I do? Because there was no legal hook, Renee. There was nothing I could do. The criminal justice system didn't work for me back in 74. Years had passed. There was nothing I could do to bring him to justice. So um, I then realized as I was walking down the street on a case in New York some years ago that, wait a minute, I said, let me check the California Medical Licensing Board because I wonder if doctors who gaslight women who did what I did, he called me when I wrote him in this email phase some years ago, um, he said that I must have been mentally ill, must be mentally ill, suffered from all sorts of diagnoses he was putting on. He wasn't my doctor. He knew nothing about me except from the past. And in response to my accusing him of strangulation and rape, this was what he came back with. So I went online and had my staff take a look at the California Medical Licensing Board. There are about three cases of male doctors with gaslit women who they, you know, patients, some, but they I treated. Patient, you know, and did this and same thing that Cal did, behaved as lied and, and told false stories and made false diagnoses on people who weren't even patients. That's a violation of the medical board. So I wrote a complaint and sent it into them. <laughs> the first time I sent it in, I got a note back to court saying, um, well, we, we don't understand your complaint, you're out of time. I wrote back and said, no, the strangulation and rape I'm out of time with, but the dishonesty and the false diagnosis, I am not out of time. Then, and I got another letter back weeks, weeks later, saying, yes, well, you're complaining against a lot of doctors. Please list all the doctors and tell us what the complaint's about. I wrote back saying, no, I'm only complaining against Dr. Calvin Hirsch. I'm not complaining against any other doctors. Please be on notice. And then I got a third letter back. Finally, this went over a long period of time, and it said, we can't do anything. And I pointed out the other cases where they had done something, but... They apparently chose not to do anything. There was an article in California paper at the time where there were another matters with the California Medical Board where apparently they don't tend to be too proactive. So this was going on at the same time. Um, and I haven't heard from Cal Hirsch since um, any of this. And uh, I was sort of hoping, frankly, I um, was hoping to get, you know, some sort of defamation claim because I'd like to actually litigate this. Like that. that would hoping he would you know, send a defamation claim over, but um, he hasn't uh, done that. So um, it is what it is. I've now, on my website, I've put my story. Um, and what I am doing, which um, I hope to change the world in this way a little bit, is I'm working with Paula Shear in New York at Pentagram, and we're putting up a community website. And essentially, it's Name Your Rapist for men and women who have been sexually assaulted, raped, Put your stories, but name the rapist. Because, you know, when I came up, it wasn't rape. It was bad, you know, didn't end up being rape. Now, the younger generation knows that it's rape, and the younger generation will name themselves, men and women, who come into my office and say, well, I've been sexually assaulted, I've been raped. But they're still hesitant because there's that club of, I'm going to bring a defamation case. I'm going to make your life hell, or I'm going to dox you online or something. That is all the time we have left for today's episode of Parallel Justice, but join us next week. We're going to talk with Anne about what she's been able to do to really change the playing field for victims of sexual assault. Not only that, we're going to learn what Yale is doing as a university 
and where Anne is now. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode. Please make sure you tune in next week. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have questions about your rights after what you just heard, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicating to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. If you need a civil attorney, you can request one at victimbar.org. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, edited by Cameron Saylor, and produced by Deidre Watford. Thank you again for joining us. Please tune in next week.